Well, uh, good evening, everyone. Yeah, it's great to be back with you again. Thanks to uh, Jonathan and Gemma and uh, Gideon for looking after us, entertaining us, spoiling us this afternoon. It was uh, uh, very pleasant and good to be with you. Uh, and again, uh, Jonathan, thanks for leading uh, so far for this evening and bringing our, our thoughts to where we are now and uh, also to our musicians as well, as ever, your help uh, greatly appreciated. So tonight, then, we carry on in Exodus chapter 3. This incredible passage where Moses finds himself standing before the burning bush, from where Moses and God have a, a, an intimate moment of conversation, an, an intimate moment of instruction, uh, and a moment where uh, Moses is taught by God and told by God that he is going to be his mouthpiece. You see, but the excuses come from Moses. The, the excuses come, I, I can't, I this, I that, I, I the other. And yet even though uh, Moses is suffering what tonight I've called a crisis of confidence, he will learn that God isn't looking for an eloquent man. He's looking for a mouthpiece. I see, I, I believe that that's true for all of us. As we look at Moses, one of the, the greatest leaders at the, in, in biblical history, in, in, in global history, God isn't looking for an eloquent man. He's looking for a mouthpiece. I lay that open as a challenge to all of us, right as our other outset of our time tonight. God isn't looking for an eloquent person. He's looking for a mouthpiece. He's looking for somebody to stand up and say that I am a Christian. To, to, to stand up when his name is taken in vain. To stand up when they're questioned about their faith. You see, just because the challenge was laid out to Moses doesn't mean that that is somehow irrelevant to us. God is not looking for an eloquent person. He's looking for a mouthpiece. And so let's read our, uh, our chapter together tonight, rather just a few verses together tonight from Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 13 to 22. And it reads like this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice and you. And you, the elders of Israel, shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that... He will let you go. And I will give, uh, give people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbors and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. And you shall put them under your sons and on your daughters. 
so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So this, this little seven-verse bit tonight, this, this wrap-up uh, of Moses' conversation before God and the burning bush, Moses is he's still in conversation then. He's still talking and discussing with God. Uh, and even with the presence of God before him, he still has a crisis of confidence. That should give us a little bit of comfort, shouldn't it? If Moses was one of these great men of God, and even he stands before God in discussion, and he is having a crisis of confidence. So little old us, sitting or standing here this evening, as we go out into this week, should know that we can have faith, and we can have trust, and we can have confidence in the message that God has given us. The message that God has given us to share with the people that we work with, the people that we socialize with, the people that we serve in whatever way that we do that. But yet here is Moses standing before God. You see, he's questioning God over his selection of being a mouthpiece. And what happens over the next few moments of discussion is that Moses is about to learn an awful lot about God in a very short space of time. And he begins with a question. When I go to Israel, who shall I say sent me? In other words... By whose authority do I come? Moses had this idea that he would go to Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at that time, with its godlike king, Pharaoh. And when Moses states that he represents the God of his forefathers, the Egyptians would have wanted to know who that was. You know, this was one of our ancient civilizations that had gods for absolutely everything. So for somebody to come and stand before the god king and say, I represent the god of my forefathers, Quite frankly, the Egyptians couldn't have cared less because that God would have just gone in the corner with their other gods. And yet here was the God who was about to show them in a very real sense that he was the God of gods and that he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he has no equal. So Moses asked God, what name shall I give them? What shall I say? What shall I say about who I am? You see, but God's response, now this is where my grasp of language and my grasp of presentation, if I was an actor, I could put more awe into this. His, his response is an, a response of absolute power and authority. It is a name that spans history. And it's a name that existed before history itself. This really is a question of what is in a name. In the ancient world, the world that we're dealing with, your name gave people an insight into your character, or it will tell you something about your heritage. So I looked at what my name meant, which is the obvious thing to do. Was it going to be something heroic? Was it going to be the name of a duke or a knight or something that's happened? No. My name simply means an area of deciduous forest and ashwood or clearing. There we go. So that kind of you know, burst my bubble as we were looking at what this, uh, what this means. But what God says, let's just get this in perspective. What God says about this is simply incredible. He turns around and he says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. It gives me goosebumps. I am who I am. You see, the language experts state that this contains everything. All the verbs, all the tenses of the verbs are in there. And it so could be therefore translated as, I was, 
I am and I shall always continue to be. Doesn't that give us a picture of who our God is? I was, I am, and I shall always continue to be. Deuteronomy says that his name is glorious and fearful. You see, let's wrap it back into the culture at the time. His name, God's name, gave insight into his character. He is eternal and omniscient. God is ever-present and ever-active. It should encourage us as we go into this week to realize that he works for our good. His, works, his word says that he works for the good of those who love him. It should bring great comfort to us and cause us to praise his name. Not just when life is tough, but when we've had today, when life is a sunny day and all is well. And we can literally turn around and say, all it is well with my soul. You see, but God knows the Jewish people. He knows their ways. And so he says to the Moses, tell the Israelites the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, the Jews are, are fixated with genealogy. Their ancestors, who they, where they came from, who were, they, who were they, which tribe did they fit in, how did it all fit together? And they relied upon their genealogy to prove their Jewish status. And yet, interestingly, the Jewish records were kept in the temple. And the temple was destroyed by fire when the Romans came. The only remaining complete Jewish genealogy is Christ's. Matthew chapter 1. I do going to say yes, but it only goes back so far. Yes, because the rest of it is found in, in Chronicles chapter 1. So here we have, in Scripture, the entire genealogy of Christ, the only Jew to still have their genealogy intact. And yet here is a nation that builds their ideas upon it, and God knows this. And he appeals to that uh, desire for lineage when he tells Moses to say. He gives them the name of three men who the Jews held in high esteem. And God has given them uh, Moses a message for the people to encourage them. If you read what the text says very carefully, you get an interesting insight. Moses hasn't yet accepted the task from God. But what God said must have been so crystal clear because God was speaking as if the task has already happened. Or rather, that he expected Moses to undertake it. You see, what is clear is that God does not hold back when it comes to telling Moses the difficulties that lie ahead. When God calls his servants, or whether he calls us, he doesn't hide from them the difficult things that are going to happen. He doesn't just ask you to go and do something and then leave you to your own devices. And then however long that may take, then bring you back in for a debrief and say, well, why don't you do that, 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 and that. God isn't like that. God doesn't work like that. When God calls somebody to do something, there is an expectation of difficulty. There is an expectation of it to be hard. And yet God doesn't leave them nor forsake them. So as we move on in our passage and we come to, come to the verses 16 to 22, God said, go. God gave Moses a message to share with the people of Israel. He gave them a message about their future salvation from Egypt. The message that God gives is for the elders. You see, unbeknown to the people... God had seen their plight. He had seen their suffering. And now was the right time for God to act. 
God and his divine wisdom and planning had decided to use Moses to be his deliverer. And now was the time for Moses to make his move. This is all a question of timing. God sees. God watches. And at some point, God will act. And there comes those times and those situations in our lives when we see things happening, and we have to cry out and we say, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you intervene? Or you will get questions. If your God is so great, why did this happen? Or why did that happen? Or why didn't he stop that? You see, there will come a time when God will step in and God will intervene. And now was the time for God to make his move. And now was the time for Moses to make his move. You see, Moses came at just at the right time. The whole series of events had come to this point. The people are suffering oppression, and God sends a rescuer. It is a picture of what is to be repeated time and time again in the Bible until ultimately the ultimate rescue would come in the shape of God's Son. So God had told Moses to go, and he sends him with a message. And God told Jesus to go, and he sent him with a message. But not just a message, but with the power of God with him. You see, ultimately, this message is sent with a message that simply says, I promise. The whole thing is a question of a promise. I promise. This is God saying promise. Not Moses or any other prophet or anybody else for that matter. But God himself. And God's promises stand the test of time. They ring true throughout the ages. And God will not break any promises he makes when god says i will do something it happens it gets done you see god's promise to moses is is twofold they will be taken out of and they will be brought into they will be brought out of oppression and brought into a land flowing with milk and honey God has promised us that we will be brought out of oppression, the oppression of sin, and we too as Christians will inherit a new land. We will be brought into, and as we've looked at and considered recently, not just a land, but a city. A city whose designer and builder is God. We have a promise. We have a promise. You see, it's only God who can eradicate someone's past and then the same promise secure somebody's future. And for that reason alone, his name is worthy of praise. God's promises always come true. And even when we don't feel like God's with us, remember his words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, there's a lot of comfort in this story. There's a lot of comfort in this account of, of Moses in this interaction with, with God at the burning bush. Moses is having this, this crisis of confidence, as we've said. I can't, Lord. I, just, I cannot do it. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves. How many times have we been in that situation? We feel that God is saying, I want you to do something. And yet, for, for reasons that, let's be perfectly honest, are at times perfectly acceptable. We say that we cannot do something. Yet God reminds us, 
that he knows what's best for us. And he gently pushes us on. And he puts things into place. And sometimes you just have to say, okay, all right, I'll go. And even though that thing might be extremely challenging, it would be extremely blessing as well. Because you're doing it for God. And you're doing it on his behalf. The Israelites, I'm sure, were, were not aware of the presence of God. The passage says so. Yet here he was, moving and shaping things around in the background and getting the right people in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to make things happen. You see, our lives are exactly the same. There will be times when we feel that God is distant, when actually he's right there, working on our behalf. He's just there. So as we go into this week, we will have no idea what it will contain. Absolutely not. We have a plan, we have a diary, and as far as that, that's it. Yet what we know is whatever happens, that God will will be working and working out what's best for us. You see, even there, there'll be those of us who will find it extremely hard this week to see what God is doing. But I pray that God will give us an awareness of his presence that we go out into this week. So let's look at verses 18 and 19. See, God continues his instructions to, to Moses, and he tells him what to say as he stands before Pharaoh. And as far as the Egyptians were concerned, Pharaoh was God, and his word was final. Yet the God of Israel was soon to prove otherwise, and that Pharaoh was actually just a man. There was nothing special about him, other than the fact that he was king. There was nothing incredible about him. There was nothing astounding about him. He was just a man. And yet here, these people had been whipped up and taught and brought into a frenzy so much so that they thought that Pharaoh was the ultimate God. Yet God himself was about to prove that he was just a man. So God gives Moses a request this time to ask of Pharaoh to allow the whole nation to leave for three days and go into the wilderness to worship. So in Moses, God has set a series of events in place, including putting words into his mouth. And of course, the Lord would allow all the parties would react to when that conversation was played out. God doesn't just throw all his power behind something, making things happen. Remember, it is all in his timing. And that marks God out as a patient God. That God marks God out as a patient God. Remember I said that Moses was about to learn a lot about God in a very short, spacious time. Well, here is Moses' first lesson. That God is patient. He's patient with sinners. He's patient with us. He's long-suffering. And his judgment will come at just at the right time. If you look back at the people that God has dealt with already in Scripture, the Amorites in Genesis 15, God may be patient and withhold judgment, but there will be a time when it will come. There will be a time when that judgment will come. You see, just like the judgment that will come when Christ returns, 
But we have the confidence that God is patient. And that should encourage us. But there will come a time when his patience will end and it will run out. So as we get to the, the latter stages of our chapter, we come to the point where we get a little bit more, a little glimpse of the power of God. We get a little glimpse at the power of God. He tells Moses exactly what is going to happen. God says he will stretch out his hand. God would stretch out his hand and judgment would come. The prophet Isaiah devotes chapters 9 and 10 on the judgment of God on Israel, on Assyria. And those, those two chapters talk exclusively, or almost exclusively, about the hand of God. And yet while God was lifting his hand on judgment on Egypt, at exactly the same time, he was ready to save the people of Israel. So the story of the exodus of God's people shows that the most powerful nation on earth were no match for the power of God. Nothing would stop God's plan. Nothing would stop his hand of judgment. And yet we, as God's people, can rest on the fact that nothing will stop us from enjoying the rewards of not God's hand, but his arm of salvation. Nothing will stop us from enjoying the rewards of not God's hand, but from his arm of salvation. So as we come to, to verses 21 and 22, we see uh, another side to the story. As God declares that he is a God of victory. Moses, as we said, is suffering from that crisis of confidence. He is God's man in God's time, but he is unsure. He sees his faults and he thinks that God cannot use him. I'm pretty sure I'm on safe ground and I say that we've all felt like that from time to time. That God can't use us because of X, Y, Z. Yet there is no change in God's plan. There's no stuttering in God's plan. There's no plan B. You know, this is not the Argentinian football team. Plan A, pass it to Messi. Plan B, pass it to Messi. Plan C, pass it to Messi. There is no plan A or C or whatever in God's timing. It comes strictly in plan A. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be a God of victory because of it. You see, God made him a promise. He showed him his patience. He showed him his power. And now he was going to tell Moses of his victory. You see, the people would ultimately overcome the Egyptians. And they would leave wealthy people. Now, I'm not going to launch off into a, a health, wealth and prosperity. That's nothing to do with this. But ultimately, God was looking after his people in this instance. And God will have the victory, and nothing will stand in his way. So as I close this evening, God's word reminds us of his victory. Christ defeated death, and just as the Egyptians would give Israel the victory, or rather, God would give the Israel the victory over the Egyptians, Jesus has had the victory over sin and death. And then that leaves little old us sitting here this evening. Where is our victory? I'm looking on tired people. And I don't say that because I'm, you know, picking on those that have drifted off to sleep. I'm saying that because it's hot. We've had a long day. Where is our victory? Where is the thing that is going to take us into this week? We have to be reminded of these words. That everyone born of God overcomes the world. Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome. There is our victory. 
There is our thing to cling on to as we sit dozing in a warm place. I said at the lunch table that you might be looking at the first sleeper to ever speaker to ever fall asleep preaching his own sermon. But here is our victory. Here is something for us to grab hold of and take into this week. That everyone born of God overcomes the world. God will have the victory. That is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. God has the victory. Moses had the victory. Christ has the victory. And we will have the victory. We have no need to have a crisis of confidence. God has done it all. And so let's keep our eyes fixed on him no matter what we face this week. The Lord bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible passage. Lord, we couldn't even begin to imagine how it felt for Moses to stand barefooted on holy ground. To stand before a bush that was burning, but the fire that didn't consume it. Father, all these things that we cannot understand, but we cannot explain, and yet for reasons that will become very clear very soon, you chose to speak to your servant in that manner. Father, tonight we have to realize and we have to acknowledge that you are God of all. And Lord, we have to remind ourselves that you have made promises. That you've promised not to test us beyond more than we can bear. That you've promised not to leave us nor forsake us. Yet you've also promised that you will judge this world. And Lord, just as you promised to judge this world, you've promised to give us a message. To go out and to share. And Lord, as we do that, we realize that we don't go alone. Because we have a God who is patient. A God who is powerful. And a God who already has the victory that goes with us. So Lord, refresh us. Renew our strength. Help us to rise on the wings of eagles. And Lord, ultimately, as we go into this week, may we be a people that serve you, that praise you, and that love you. And reminding ourselves that we no need for a crisis of confidence. Because you already have the victory. The victory is already yours. The battle is already won. And we're on the winning side. So Lord, we come before you this evening, giving you thanks as always. In Jesus' name, amen.